The old model was professor or teacher imparting knowledge. I don't believe that that really is the model that pertains anymore, at least not in my discipline in higher education. It's really more about maybe I'm a guide. Maybe I can help direct them and remind them of lessons from the past and context and consequences and, you know, theoretical ideas and, and all of that. But really, by guiding them through their journey and learning from them as they discover new knowledge, because I, I, that's what I really try to do is I, I don't just try to say, here are all the principles of media ethics. Here's all the principles of X, Y or Z. Instead, I have them develop some of their own ideas because it's such a changing world. This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by Professor of Journalism and Media Studies and author John V. Pavlik. Thanks so much for joining us, John. It's a great pleasure. Let's dive right in. Tell us about your path to the present moment. Where did you go to college? What did you plan to pursue? Well, if I'm going to really be completely honest about it, I think it was sort of in my family because my grandfather was a newspaper publisher. My father had an electronics business. My mother was a teacher and a librarian. And sort of all that came together in me. So growing up in Wisconsin, I went to the University of Wisconsin. I studied journalism and media. And then I decided, you know, I really love to do research. So I went to the University of Minnesota and got a master's degree. And then while I was doing that, I realized, you know, I want to do this full time. So I went on to get a Ph.D. in mass communication. And uh, by 1982, I was on the faculty at Pennsylvania State University. So started there and started doing, you know, the three main things that a professor does, at least, you know, in a research university, teaching, research, and service. And I have just really been you know, enjoying that ever since. Along the way, I've developed, you know, evolving kinds of interests. And so my focus is mainly on the impact of changing technology on journalism, media, and society, especially in a global age. So I've done a lot of international work as well as work about the impact of technology. And I also believe it's very important for somebody in my field to stay highly engaged with the news industry, the media industry. So I've done a lot of things along the way with media industry. Uh, I was a columnist for CNN.com back when it was, you know, in this early days back in the, you know, 20 years ago, about 1999, 2000, 2001, that, that era. And so, you know, eventually my path took me to New York and I was, a, you know, a professor at Columbia University. I got married to a woman I met in New York and we had a family. Eventually we wound up settling in Cold Spring around 2002. And about that time is when I switched over to uh, uh, Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. So I give you more details, but that's an overview. <laughs> <laughs> what qualities do you think are necessary to work in this field? Well, I think uh, the most important thing is to really believe in the value of education. And for me, it's about creating new knowledge, doing that collaboratively with colleagues, with students, with the people in the, the media industries, and then sharing that as much as possible with my students and my peers and, you know, just having a passion for, for knowledge and how important that is. So that's really, I think, the, the most important uh, ingredient. There are a lot of other things, but I would say if, if you were going to reduce it to one thing, that's, that's probably it. Do you think the profession has changed you? Oh, I think it's uh, had a lot of influence on me in terms of how I see the world, how I understand the importance of freedom of speech. I mean, I've, I, ever since I was a kid, I believed in you know, freedom of speech and press. But I think, 
Now, in today's world, it's, you know, it's a very contested thing. Uh, and being involved in journalism and media and working with people in the industry and being connected with people around the world, I just see how important it is. And so my commitment to freedom of speech and press is, is more than ever. Also, I believe in doing it with a priority on ethics, uh, because I see so many challenges. You know, when you look at our leadership and in, in, if you want to call it that in Washington, D.C., you know, things that have to do with ethics aren't don't always seem to be at the highest level for every for all of them. Some yes, some no. Uh, so one of the things I teach at, at Rutgers is a required course in media ethics and law. So I think those two aspects have really changed me. But also I think the third thing would be understanding how important global connections are and how interconnected we are as a, as a planet and understanding things in that way that we're all part of this world. Uh, you know, we can't just be one alone or isolated. We have to be connected and work together toward whatever future uh, we can build. What do you like most about the work that you do? The, the thing I like the most, if, you know, if to pick one, is working with students. It's just constantly a challenge, constantly an adventure, and constantly, for me, learning. You know, they talk about, you know, doing course evaluations and things like that and having the students fill out the assessments and, you know, getting peer evaluations and all that stuff. Well, that's all terrific, and I don't want to discount that. But to me, the best indicator is when I learn from the students. And the more I learn from them, the more successful I think the class is. Because, you know, maybe the old model, if you go back 50 years, the old model was, you know, professor or teacher imparting knowledge. I don't believe that that really is the model that pertains anymore, at least not in my discipline in higher education. It's really more about maybe I'm a guide. Maybe I can help direct them and remind them of lessons from the past and context and consequences and, you know, theoretical ideas and, and all of that. But really, by guiding them through their journey and learning from them as they discover new knowledge, because I, I, that's what I really try to do is I, I don't just try to say, here are all the principles of media ethics. Here's all the principles of X, Y, or Z. Instead, I have them develop some of their own ideas because it's such a changing world. You know, if you went back 20 or 30 years ago, the idea of inclusion in media wasn't, you know, at the top of the agenda. Now it's such an important thing. And students really have a lot of thoughts about that and a lot of perspective to add on that. So I learned from them. I want another course I teach, a course I designed uh, is called Digital Media Innovation. And so it's all about teaching the students about being entrepreneurial and developing their own ideas for how to do things differently in the world of media, how to solve problems using some of the emerging media technologies and platforms. And I have them create a prototype. So they start out, they have to develop, I give them, you know, some ideas, but I have them develop their own idea. You know, it has to be a twist on maybe something that, you know, I, I've talked to them about, or maybe it's just something they develop completely on their own. But then they pursue it to the point where they present a prototype by the end of the semester. And sometimes they're fantastic. And I really get, you know, the most satisfaction out of that. Have any of their projects gone on to be like produced or or like fulfilled? Sure. I've had students who developed a prototype and then went on to, you know, put something on maybe one of the crowdfunding uh, websites to get some support for their ideas so they can develop it. Or I had a student who developed an app for, for the iPhone and there are things like that. Absolutely. Sounds exciting. In the realm of new technologies and new techniques, does the advent of deep fakes concern you in terms of 
taking credibility away from what video shows factually since the trustworthy aspect seems to be eliminated if one can achieve and create a fake video that's undetectable as a fake? Yeah, right. Uh, no, I think the, the phenomenon of deep fakes is very troubling and of, of, of profound concern and consequence for our society, for democracy. You mentioned I was an author. I, a book that I have uh, written recently just came out from Columbia University Press in September. It's called Journalism in the Age of Virtual Reality. And one of the things I explore in that book is how I think this problem of deepfakes is going to get worse before it gets better, because we're going to start seeing the possibility of deepfakes that take things to a whole new level in terms of platforms like augmented reality or virtual reality. And I think we may see the advent of what I call artificial realities, so that people will have a hard time distinguishing between what's even real and you know what's a virtual experience and what's a real experience. So then that may affect their memories. It certainly will affect their perceptions. So I think that there are several things we have to do, one of which is just put an even higher priority on media literacy all the way from, you know, when kids are even in preschool, because they're already using tablets and, you know, screen devices. So right from the beginning, I think, teaching them about media literacy and developing those skills and critical thinking, I think, is more important than ever. And all the way through for society, I think that, you know, if we're going to just depend on, say, the industry to police its own deep fakes, that's not going to work. If we're going to rely on elected officials to come up with intelligent regulatory frameworks, that's probably not going to work. So I think we need to you know, look to a couple of other places, one of which is have a well-informed public so they can be really critical in their consumption and production because they're going to be producers of media. They already are. And then the other side is to work with the media industries and put a priority on identifying the quality media organizations and media content. So when you see this particular, say, if we use the word brand, you see the brand that you trust, you'll have more confidence that that's, you know, content you can believe in. And you don't see from a brand you trust, that's going to be one of the indicators that, hey, I should double check this. I shouldn't necessarily just accept this thing because it looks real. So it's sort of a process like text articles where they can be easily faked much easier than a video technology. The principles will have to apply. Don't believe everything you read. Don't believe everything you see, I suppose, uh, with video. Or everything you experience. Because now with things like augmented reality and virtual reality or mixed reality, you have, you have very immersive experiences, even some of them being haptic or tactile. And so that will add to the seeming reality of it. So you have to question all of that. Do you generally like the people that you work with, the, those that have been attracted to the fields that you work alongside with as colleagues? I do enjoy my colleagues because, you know, the, the other professors that I know, whether they're full-time professors or we have a lot of part-time faculty who work in the industry and maybe teach a course, uh, you know, in, this, in you know, one of the academic terms, they bring so much to the table and it's exciting to see what they know and, you know, uh, how they do such wonderful work. There are some who are doing a lot of work with, say, the realm of social justice and the media. And I'm just so impressed by people who are committed to, to that or people who do work that is really taking a close look at the impact of media on politics and you know the role of, 
of journalism in, in that environment and, you know, other aspects of, of our lives. And many of, many of my colleagues do really wonderful work in terms of their research, but also many of them are just splendid teachers. And although I don't spend a lot of time in their classroom, we, you know, most professors, you know, you don't, you only go to somebody else's class if they invite you. I usually, we don't just jump in, you know, <laughs> but occasionally they invite me. And on those occasions when I've been able to go, it's just, wow, this is fantastic. I have a, one colleague who does a lot of work with regard to media and Islamophobia. And I remember her lecture was just fantastic. And it wasn't just her lecturing at the students. She was amazing. 50 or so students. And she knew, she seemed to know them all by name. And she have her, her class was more like a conversation, but just at such a high level. So it was really wonderful in, in that way. So I, I really do enjoy that. And on those occasions when I have a chance to work with, with people in the, the media industries or in journalism, you know, I've really gotten to know some wonderful colleagues there. I did a project, this was a few years ago, with somebody who had been at CNN. He's now a professor out at uh, University of Oregon. Anyway, we did a project. We had funding from the United Nations, part of the UN called UNESCO. And this was a project to help rebuild journalism education after the end of the conflict, if you want to call it that, in Iraq. And so we worked with professors from uh, Iraq and, and Baghdad and Kurdistan. And we met with them in, in Jordan a couple of times. And then we had them come over here. Some they actually, group of them, they actually came here to Cold Spring, uh, where I live, and got to show them our beautiful uh, village. And, you know, working with industry colleagues like that, is splendid as well because although they may you know bring a different perspective not maybe such a maybe traditional academic point of view the you know the perspective they do bring is fantastic when i taught at columbia university uh i had a rare opportunity to team teach with a colleague of mine who had been a senior journalist with cbs news and so he, he and i team taught this course and it was just so much fun because I bring like the you know the academic side. He'd bring the journalism industry side, and together we'd really have this wonderful you know back and forth and give and take. And I think for the students it was a great way to see you know the kind of questions you can ask from a more academic point of view, or the kind of questions you ask from a more journalistic uh, point of view. But together they can both you know advance knowledge and, and understanding and insight. So I have really thoroughly enjoyed those kind of you know opportunities to engage with either my academic colleagues or, or industry colleagues. And then, you know, I, I spent a year in the Middle East in a country called Qatar. I was took a leave from Rutgers. I spent a year with Northwestern University, which has a campus over there. And there I got to know people in other walks of life too, in the in the Qatari government, as well as, you know, other people from just around the world. It's a very international, cosmopolitan place in this city called Doha. And Getting to see things from another culture perspective, because it's a, it's a Muslim uh, country, it's a, an absolute monarchy, you know, so you're talking about a very different political situation. And to see things from their point of view was, you know, really enlightening. The Taliban had offices just on the block from where we lived, you know, so it's like, okay, this is really interesting, right? So there's a lot of things you can learn when you get out there and uh, can, and you engage people from different walks of life and Great opportunity to learn and to share. Were you surprised at any particular thing about the culture or something perhaps that you had preconceptions about that maybe corrected you when you got there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was surprised by, by a lot of things. And almost all of it was in a positive way. And just as an, as an illustration, my wife, who is an artist, she did a show while we were over in Qatar. They have a center called Qatara. So a lot of wonderful experiences that way and got to meet people that we wouldn't have otherwise met, some, some Saudi Arabian artists, some, some women, and, you know, just 
breaks a lot of your stereotypes of, of things, you know. But anyway, uh, she and I took a day trip where they had told us, you know, as expats, don't take don't take the bus. It's not very good. It's not very safe. Whatever. Why do we care? We're going to take the bus because it's the only only good way to get up to a northern a part of the country. Uh, is a very small country, about 100 miles long. It's on the tip of the peninsula near Saudi Arabia and in the Arabian Gulf or Persian Gulf. Kind of depends on where you, you know, your point of view, what you call it. Anyway, about 100 miles from Doha up to uh, this place called Shamal, which is a city up in the north. It's a, it's a port, fishing village, looks out toward Bahrain and has great sunsets. My wife's also a photographer, so she said, I want to go there and see what kind of pictures we can get of the sunset. So we went up there and we found a kind of a good spot and we're waiting for the sun to go down. And it's uh, this little shop. And one of the things they have, a lot of these clay ovens, and they take like some dough, and I'm probably not describing this very accurately, <laughs> slap it on the inside of the oven, it bakes quickly, and then they have like these big wooden paddles that they then take them out. And you, they're so delicious, especially when they're fresh and hot right out of that oven. And very cheap. You'd buy like 10 of them, 10 big, 10 big pieces for the equivalent of about a dollar. It was ridiculous. We thought, okay, so we, you know, we're snacking on one of those. And a, uh, a pickup truck pulls up. And four young men, they're Qatari men, and they're wearing the traditional fold. That's the, you know, the traditional uh, clothing for the, for, for the nationals, Qatari nationals men. And they get out, and um, you know, we didn't speak a lot of Arabic, but we spoke a little bit. So we, we said hello. We said, assalamu alaikum, which is hello. Oh, so they said it back. Uh, or Michael Salam is the response. Anyway, so they go inside, and we're still there when they come back out because we're still waiting for the sunset, munching on the bread. And the one guy who was like maybe the tallest and a really like a really handsome guy, you know, and we, turned out he spoke English. So he said something to us, and we resp- and we started chatting. All right, and after a few minutes of of chatting, we hadn't introduced ourselves yet. We finally get around to introducing ourselves, and he says his name, Muhammad Al Thani. My wife goes, are you part of the royal family? Because the, the name is Althani. He goes, yeah, but I don't really like to talk about that. You know, I just want to be people, right? And we're like, oh, my gosh, you know, so it's fantastic. And he said, and we chatted some more. And he said, you know, we have a falcon a farm up here. And uh, you should come be our guests and visit. We said, really? He said, yeah. So we came and visited the falcon farm. And it was this incre- a huge farm with a big aviary. And the falcons were spent fantastic, but they also had camels, and we went all around. They gave us this wonderful tour, and I got to the end of it. They all gathered around, and they gave me this big, tall glass of milk to drink. It was camel milk. And uh, I'm like, how can I get out of drinking this? I don't drink. <laughs> I don't even drink cow's milk, you know? Uh, what's it going to do to me, you know, because I'm really lactose intolerant? <laughs> but there was no way I could get out of it gracefully. So I drank the whole glass, and they were so happy, you know? And so for like the next hour or whatever, I was just waiting, you know, for the other shoe to drop. How was it? It was fantastic. It was delicious. And so I looked it up online. It turned out camel milk is really good for you. It has none of the things that milk has that's bad for you, or cow's milk. It doesn't have any lactose. It's really nutritious, all these things. So it was like, hmm, learn something new every day, right? (laughs) (laughs) So that's like on the good side, a lot of stuff like that. We met people who were just fabulous and so friendly. You know, everywhere we went, everybody was friendly, whether they were Qataris. There's not that many Qataris in Qatar. There's a couple of million people, but 90% of them are expats from all around the world. Only about 200, 300,000 are Qataris. So you don't really meet that many Qataris. They had to bring a lot of expats because it's grown from a little little pearl fishing village in the 1970s. Then they found oil. So it's huge now. And they're going to host the World Cup, I think, in two years. And so they've had to do so much in so short a time, and they don't have the means in terms of human 
you know, resources to do all this. So they brought a lot of people, and that's why they, you know, have an education city where all these Western universities, about eight of them, including Northwestern, and that's, you know, building on the work I'd done for the UN before in the Middle East and some other things I did in the UAE. This was a great opportunity for me to spend a longer time there and my wife to do art in that in that Katara. So it was fabulous. But I remember one day coming down, we lived about eight kilometers from the campus. We were right in the West Bay. We looked down the Gulf. It was a fantastic place to live, right in the city center. And you could walk to stuff and all that. We didn't want to be like in a compound, you know, out in, out in the desert, you know, maybe with a bunch of expats. We wanted to live among the people and maybe occasionally actually interact with somebody and, you know, in a real way. So every day, you know, there was a bus that would come to pick everybody up. And one morning I, I came down there to get the bus and there was nobody around other than like the, the person behind the desk. It was like it was a hotel, but it was like a hotel and uh, apartment combination, all that stuff. And after a few minutes, I started getting suspicious. And I, I said to the guy, I said, excuse me, uh, have you seen a bus come this morning? He says, oh, there won't be a bus today. And I said, it was like Tuesday or something. I said, why wouldn't there be a bus today? I felt like the guy, you know, it was the guy in Groundhog Day. He's like, well, what would be? <laughs> he says, well, today's a national holiday. And I said, really? He says, yes, we have a new Amir. Didn't you get the text message last night? And I said, I went to bed and I didn't check my test, text message. I'm like, like a person who's constantly checking my texts and I don't, have, I don't have the, like, you know, constant notifications. Well, it turned out late that night, like around 10 o'clock, the new Amir was announced. The father had stepped down. The son had become the new Amir. They sent out a message that said, today's the next day, national holiday. Nobody go to work. That's a quick turnaround. So, you know, there were surprises in a lot of ways that but kind of cut both ways. You know, I mean, in terms of, oh, my God, what if I had something really important I was going to do at the office today? I can't go do it just because they announced the night before that it's a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, you know. What are the downsides of the profession? Challenges, obstacles. Tell us about that. Well, there, you know, there aren't that many downsides, really, or I probably wouldn't have been enjoyed it for the past four decades. But there are some downsides and some things are getting worse. And, you know, that's very concerning. One of the downsides is may sound, you know, petty. <laughs> but I would say the whole thing of grading. To me, it's all about the learning. And I think grading somehow gets the priority mixed up. It becomes more important for many students to get that grade they really want that A or, you know, they want the grade. And it's it's almost like learning becomes secondary. And I think it kind of becomes that way for the professors, too, in a sense that they're more concerned about, you know, establishing a grade curve or distribution and less about trying to teach as much as they can to every single last student. So if there was some way to do that differently, when I taught at Columbia University, we didn't do grades. It was either you you passed or you didn't. And I love that model. And if I could go back to a model where the student either masters the subject to a level of proficiency that allows them to go on and say, okay, you've mastered this or you don't, I would much prefer that. That would take the, that the whole, it would put it all back on learning is what it's all about, not grades. Grades don't, you know, that's funny. That's just my point of view. And some people may disagree with that totally, but 40 years of teaching, I see it too often. So uh, and I have a little experience on the other side where we didn't have to worry about grading. And it, it did make it better uh, for me and I think for my students. Okay, so that's one thing. Another thing is academic freedom. I think it's been eroding. And there was even something that came out of the federal education department under the current Trump uh, administration that they were 
ordering some schools to change their curriculum or threatening them with cutting off their funding, you know, federal funding. And so that's really very concerning that we could lose academic freedom because I don't think there's anything more important than the freedom to think, the freedom to generate new knowledge, the freedom to distribute that knowledge wherever it takes us. You know, so I think that's very concerning. And then uh, I suppose a third aspect that's it doesn't affect me directly per se, but I'm very aware of it. And so I do everything I can to mitigate it, which is the rising cost of going to school. And when I was a student college back in the 70s, 80 percent of the funds for public education in college universities came from government sources, state and federal. Only about 20 percent came from tuition. Well, over these past four or five decades, the government, federal states, have slashed and slashed and slashed their support for higher education so that now it's completely reversed. Only about 20% of the funding for public education and higher education comes from government, federal or state, and 80% or so has to come from tuition. And so tuitions have risen so much that it, it's a terrible situation for students. So I think that, you know, that's the thing that uh, it doesn't affect me per se, but it's very troubling and very problematic because it's made it so that college can be out of reach for many students. But even those who can go sometimes come out with enormous debt. Yeah, they become debt slaves Yeah, for, for many years. Yeah, I've heard of people in their 50s and 60s still paying off student loans. Mm-hmm. And, and those loans were less expensive than today's. And the way things are written, at least currently... You can declare bankruptcy, but the one loan you can't write off is a student loan. What about any major challenges or obstacles that you had to overcome? Well, I've been fortunate uh, in a lot of ways so that maybe some of the challenges that some of my colleagues have had to face, whether they're people from disadvantaged groups or marginalized groups in society, you know, maybe types of uh, identity or persons of color or, you know, gender, they faced a lot greater obstacles than I have. So I've been fortunate in that way. But at the same time, there are real challenges. And one of those is there isn't a lot of domestic funding available for people who want to do research on journalism and media studies. So a lot of your work, at least for me and the colleagues that I know, you have to uh, do your work on a shoestring budget oftentimes. And so that's a that's a, a great challenge. Or you have to, you know, find other sources of funding. Over the years, I've been fortunate to be able to get funding from a variety of sources. But I think that's one of the great challenges for people who are in a lot of the fields that are related to, say, the humanities. And the humanities have been the same way that we've seen tuition situation become extremely problematic. Humanities have been under assault. And of course, STEM is so important. I'm not I'm in any way implying we shouldn't be committed to STEM education, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. But I think fields that are related to humanities, like journalism and media and things like that, as well as more traditionally, you know, humanities fields, those things are the cornerstone of what makes for a good citizen. You know, it gets you well-rounded. It makes you fluent in the culture and the language, and, you know, all those good things. And so we need that kind of education to be robust and healthy and growing, just as much as we need great STEM education so that we have terrific people in those more applied fields. So, you know, that's been, I think, a real area of challenge because I, you know, kind of in that 
general domain myself. And so resources can be very tight, and that makes it very hard to do the work. What are you researching these days? Well, I mentioned that I did a study. Uh, I was the lead principal investigator. We had three other principal investigators, two of whom were in Qatar, one at Northwestern in Evanston slash Chicago in Qatar and the UAE. Well, we've applied for another grant to do the next phase of that research. The first three-year study was on how people use or don't use, but it's mostly use, mobile media in Qatar and the UAE. Those two countries have the highest internet penetration in the world, over 99% of people in those countries, whether they're nationals, citizens, or expats, use the internet. So very, very connected in that, in that way, but it's almost all through a mobile device, you know, their smartphone. They have almost three handheld devices per person. <laughs> so, you know, they have a lot of, lot of mobile devices and they use them. So that was our first study. Then our new study will be sort of the next iteration of that, looking at how these people are engaged with or not with immersive media like augmented reality, and virtual reality. So we're in the final stages of the application for that uh, grant. If we get that, we should, I think, you know, we have a good chance of getting it. If we get that, that'll be another three-year investigation there. That's going to be, you know, a major part of, of my focus in terms of, of research. But I'll, you know, continue to do some other things that'll be you know, maybe a, a smaller scale or maybe, you know, more domestically oriented. But I think I'll continue to be really doing a lot of work in this realm of AR and VR. I've been doing a lot of work. I started that work back in the mid-90s, collaborating with colleagues, in, mostly in computer science, Columbia University, and I still work with some of them. It's an area that continues to grow and develop, and there's a lot of research to be done. You know, the journalism and media application, that's the side I'm interested in. Where do you see it going in the near future? Well, I think that especially AR is going to grow, continue to grow. It's already pretty you know, widespread, but it's going to grow even more because it's easy. You know, you can use your smartphone, uh, and then big companies like Apple are developing AR wearables. And that will, I think, be a big driver. I think, you know, VR, there's a lot of potential there as well, but it's a little more challenging because a lot of people don't want to put on a VR headset, you know, at least not a lot of the time. They might do it while they're playing a game or something, or they'll use it, in, you know, maybe it's in a, in a business setting or in a training setting, things like that. But I think that these immersive media will continue to grow in a lot of ways because they'll be very useful for people to, you know, it's kind of analogous to the... Uh, you know, the old museum tour, audio, you know, guide that you'd get a headphone on. Now you can do that with everything and it can be a multimedia experience that you can get anywhere you go. And so it's a platform for content creators. And I look at a lot of the news media, they're really developing some interesting work. The New York Times, for example, USA Today is another one, you know, among domestic news media, but internationally, there are others who've done a lot of uh, interesting work as well. So I see it as it's growing. It's, you know, it's not going to, take over. It's not going to replace traditional journalism, but it's really going to be very much complementary. The same way that photography emerged in the 19th century as a very important tool in journalism, I think AR and VR will be an important new tool for, for telling stories that can be very engaging. You look at the world of newspapers, for example. All right, My, new, my grandfather was a newspaper publisher. Maybe he would roll over in his grave if he knew what it was like today for newspapers, right? You look at, say, the New York Times, they introduced their first immersive journalism using this current generation of technology. 
back in 2015, they did this immersive report about the refugee crisis. They call it the displaced. And you could put on the VR headset. They sent them out to all 1 million of their readers. At the time, almost all their subscribers were to the newspaper. It's four years ago. And they gave them the Google Cardboard. And you just stick your smartphone in, and then you could be immersed as if you're in one of these refugee camps. And you're riding around with this little boy who lived in, in is, you know, nonfiction. It was a piece of journalism. It was documentary-type journalism. As if you're right there with this kid riding around on his bicycle in this refugee camp. Really can be very, you know, powerful tool for building empathy. And so now the New York Times has over 4.7 million paying subscribers, and 80% of them are digital only. And there's actually less than a million now who just are, who are, who are newspaper print product. And so when I look at where things are going, it's going away from the, quote, printed newspaper for daily type journalism. There may still be, you know, a role for it. Weeklies may still do very well in print, but for the daily kind of thing, uh, especially young people, they do everything on their mobile device. I mean everything, <laughs> for better or for worse. And so I think that AR and VR, it's a way to really create content that's uniquely designed for that platform. So it's, it has a lot of potential. Tell us about your proudest moments and biggest disappointments within your career. Well, I think I've checked the greatest joy in is when this newest book of mine came out, Journalism in the Age of Virtual Reality with Columbia University Press came out in September. That was really a labor of almost a quarter century because I started doing work back in about 1995, 1996, developing some initial ideas. I just joined the faculty at Columbia University in the Graduate School of Journalism, and I was working with some colleagues in computer science, a guy named Steve Finer, who's a computer science professor, a guy named Srin Ayar, who's another computer science professor, and they had developed some amazing technologies. Steve had done work with this new thing, augmented reality, and Sri had done this work with this new thing, 360 video cameras, digital 360 video. He had invented one. And, you know, I said it to both of them separately, but I said, you know, Shri, this would be a great tool for a journalist to go out and do reporting, shooting with 360 video. And Steve, I said, this would be an incredible way for telling a story, you know, that would be immersive and geolocated uh, and, you know, and all this stuff. And so they both liked, you know, the possibility and we collaborated and we developed the first, well, with my students then, so we created this course called the News Laboratory. And so students started working on these projects, different teams. One team was working on the, we call it the Mobile Journalist Workstation, creating the first augmented reality, or we call it situated documentary because it was situated where things occurred. And then you'd walk it or you know, go into that space and kind of like relive the past. And then the other, with the 360 camera, one of the stories my students worked on, they won an award for it. They covered the Irish lesbian gay organization's attempt to march in the New York City St. Patrick's Day Parade, which they had been banned from marching in. And my students won an award for the best interactive documentary of the year. So this was like fantastic. And I took great joy in those things. But it was a trajectory that took me 25 years to go from first ideas and first research and first experiments with my students to actually putting it all together into a complete package in this book and finally having it come out. <laughs> that was, you know, it was a very long gestation, but it felt good when that came out. So that, you know, that that's uh, maybe a high watermark. Uh, now, in terms of, uh, you say, what was the other part? What's the biggest disappointment? Yeah, biggest disappointments. Well, I think that it's, it's not really a, a personal 
disappointment per se, but it's disappointing in a deep way to see the gradual decimation of journalism as an industry over the past quarter century or so. Because you know, I've been just fundamentally committed to journalism for almost all my life. I, when I was a kid, I was a newspaper boy. Back when I was about 13 or 14, and the paper I delivered was the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And decades later, I became a professor and executive director of the Center for New Media and the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. And one of my colleagues, this guy named Sig Gisler, who had been the editor of that newspaper when I was a kid. And here I was decades later, I was his colleague. <laughs> I mean, I was like, wow. So, you know, I was like big believer in, in journalism and its importance uh, and the importance of doing quality journalism and a commitment to the idea of, of, of facts and getting them right and the pursuit of truth. So all of those things. And to see how things have crumbled in, in so many ways that now we even are challenging the basic idea of, of a fact and people are saying there could be alternative facts and, you know, that truth doesn't seem to be something that many people can, you know, uh, agree on or see as important that it's, there were, you know, this idea of like that we're in a post, post-truth society where beliefs become more important than knowledge. That's probably the single biggest disappointment. So it's not like a personal thing. It's not like something that, you know, that I had that, you know, that failed or was bad or, or whatever. That, I think, is really disappointing. So, but I'm not giving up. You know, I think we could still turn it around, all right? You know, if we are innovative enough in our journalism and, you know, do things that demonstrate a commitment to the pursuit of truth. In, but nobody, see, so this is the other thing about journalism. Nobody's required to consume the news. It's not like you have to do it. You do it because you want to do it or because you're motivated in some way. There may be a lot of reasons why people do it, but it's not because they must do it. It's not like you get a jury notice and you have to you know, serve in a jury. It's not like you got to pay your taxes every year. Consuming the news or participating in the journalistic you know, sphere, whether you're a consumer or a citizen journalist or whatever, you do it because you want to or you know, whatever reason, it's not because you must. So because nobody has to be a journalism consumer or a journalism participant— we have to make journalism interesting. It has to be somehow something people can get a certain amount of enjoyment out of. And historically, they used to do things like in the newspaper, they would print the comics, you know, or they would print the horoscope. They would print stuff that wasn't just hard news, right? They'd put some features in there and things like that. Well, since people aren't reading printed daily newspapers nearly as much anymore, especially younger people, and they're using their mobile devices, I think that if news media can be more committed to really utilizing that platform effectively, I think they can draw people back in to the news sphere, the journalism sphere, and it can become vibrant again. I'm not ready to give up on it. So disappointing, but it's not the end of the road. But how does one get organizations that typically peddle misinformation and lies back into line? You say the media or the news media I'm not even sure what that means. You know, I think of all the different organizations, some of them peddling falsehoods or trying to distort reality for people. We have no mechanisms to prevent that. I know other countries, Canada, for example, the laws prevent peddling lies. 
How do, do you square that with your optimism? <laughs> well, it won't be easy. I don't want to sugarcoat it. Uh, but in the history of our country, we've had several phases of journalism. You know, when we were still the colonies, the colonial press, and then in the earliest uh, years of the United States, the partisan press were not the kind of journalism that we had for, you know, pretty much all of the 20th century. It was not until after, I think, Benjamin Day and some others started trying to reimagine journalism that could be for the mass public that journalism changed its whole philosophy to try to pursue stories in a different way that would be that would put a premium on kind of neutrality and not taking sides. I'm reluctant to use the word objective. It could be a pursuit, but I don't know that we can ever achieve it. We're all humans. We all have a point of view. We all have a bias. But anyway, because we've had several eras of journalism, I'm not willing to think that we're at the end, that it's going to be the way it is right now, this really divided uh, kind of state. I think that it's quite possible that we're still going through a period of disruption, and a lot of it fueled by the internet and the rise of mobile media and digital technologies and you know all of that. So I think that this may be a period of, of massive disruption on so many levels, and we're still sorting it all out. So I think that there may be light at the end of the tunnel, not that the change is going to be ending, but that we may see more and more people who come to recognize the importance of facts. If you go back to when we saw the invention of the printing press, Gutenberg, and the Renaissance, you know, it started introducing new ideas and literacy on a, on a mass scale and, you know, different things that changed the social order. And I'm doing a very interesting chapter. I was invited to do a chapter in a book. Uh, a colleague of mine invited me to do a chapter that is looking at how Americans see the rest of the world. And not just what I think, but instead, what does research tell us? So I'm, I'm pouring over all these surveys and polls that have been done by many organizations over the last however many years to get a sense of how Americans see the rest of the world, how Americans see different countries, how Americans see different topics uh, and issues, and how it varies by whether it's demographics or by political uh, position and, and things like that. And I'm seeing a lot of evidence that there is a significant portion of the public that definitely cares and believes in the science that tells us that there, climate change is real and that it's human influence. You know, and a lot of things like that. So as I go through the survey data, I, you know, I have some hope that there is a significant portion of the population out there that believes in pursuing truth, that it should be evidence-based, uh, things like that. So I think that journalism is in that realm. Journalism re relies on evidence. We you know, have their own terminology. They call them facts. But you know, it's, it's about evidence. And then packaging it in ways that is digestible to the public, that's interesting, that, you know, uh, helps to aid understanding. So I think that there's a lot of evidence out there that a lot of the public still cares about that. So, you know, gives me some reason for optimism. But a big problem, another, another side of this is people sometimes think that what's disrupted journalism is new technology. Well, that's certainly a factor. People think of, you know, okay, and all the advertising. You know, what really made mass media possible was largely the ability to put ads in newspapers because they were the only thing that reached 
the big mass public uh, with the penny press when that that was the beginning of it all. Then with the rise of the Internet and the development of these digital media companies that became digital giants like Google or Alphabet, Facebook, Twitter, etc., the advertisers said, wait a minute, why are we putting it in traditional media when we can reach people much more efficiently and even make the transaction happen if we put it into this digital environment? And so the, the tens of billions, maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars have left the traditional journalistic arena and flowed over to these digital platforms. So people think, well, that's what's disrupted. Well, it's a factor. But I think even bigger, if you think about one of the things that's happened, there was a study that came out last year that showed there are over a thousand communities in the United States now that are local news deserts. They don't have any kind of, you know, regular local journalism. And what's happened is a lot of these big mutual funds have purchased the news media around the country and then they just gut them. They just strip away everything they can to get the biggest return they can for as long as they can. And, you know, that's really the thing that's done the most damage to journalism, I think. And there's also the effect, the other effect of new media besides sucking advertising dollars from print media isn't the ability to directly communicate with the public, bypassing a publisher of any sort like Twitter or Facebook. I mean, the president regularly issues messages, if you can call them that. Absolutely. And certainly there's a, a significant portion of the public, but I think it's less than 50 percent. It's the percent roughly that voted for him that may they may believe that when they see those tweets. But I think more people see those for what they are, that they're his they're his point of view. And that while sometimes they may be factual, oftentimes they're just his opinion and they may be a significant departure from the facts. And so that portion of the public still will look to professionals, whether it's journalists or people in other disciplines, but who can vet some of that for truthfulness. So I think that, yeah, people can circumvent the traditional media gatekeeper. And that's certainly a huge issue. Uh, but it's also, it's a, it's a plus too. Why shouldn't individuals or organizations be able to communicate their message directly to the public? Uh, they should. I mean, they, they have had that for a long time, but usually in the past it was advertising. You know, and people recognized it for what it was because it was labeled that when it was printed in the newspaper or broadcast on television as a commercial. So people recognized that it's a paid message and they would use publicity or other strategies like that to get stuff into the news that wasn't labeled as advertising, you know, so that you know, they could take advantage of the credibility of journalism in that way. Now, the credibility of journalism has really been eroded in, in some ways among some segments of the population. So now these Individuals or organizations can go straight to the public through whatever platform they want, frequently through social media. And, you know, the public is left to decide, do they want to believe it or do they want to have it checked out? Sometimes people can check it out themselves. And, you know, a lot of times you'll hear that the Internet didn't like that. You know, they, <laughs> you know, you've seen that phrase. And uh, that's because a lot of citizens can check stuff out and can question stuff. So that's a good thing. But also, I think there's a real role for the professional journalist to vet some of those claims that come out or positions that come out from organizations that take it straight to the public, but maybe they're misrepresenting something or giving you only one point of view. It's not the whole truth. What they say might be true, but it's leaving out this major other part of what's also true, the context, maybe. I guess one has to look at also the motivation of the person who's posting, publishing, tweeting to determine whether the motivation is to disseminate the truth 
or to deliver a message that benefits them in some way and distorts the truth. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a really important uh, thing to think about. What is the intent? Because in the past, we, you know, we had this phenomenon, it was called propaganda, but it was usually you know, apparent. It would come during the, during the war in a form of leaflets that would be dropped from an airplane or you know, take other forms and posters and, and things like that. Now, propaganda is much less easily detected. It might come in the form of subtly distorted information that comes out on social media, and 90% of what's in there is accurate. And that's what sucks you in and you start to believe it, and that's just the 10% of it that takes a twist. So that's the part, and it's hard to tell. And then we also have to think about the fact that a lot of this is coming from not from humans. And it's not so much that it's meant to change your point of view on X, Y, or Z, but more just to disrupt our civil society. And so these bots can, by the thousands, just pump out stuff that takes basic facts and then distorts them just just enough or takes extreme points of view and just amplifies them. And it starts creating a discourse that is not one that is civil or not one that is interested in rationality and it's just interested in dividing us that was so well said don't ask me to repeat it (laughs) (laughs) is there anything that you've always wanted to do or achieve that you haven't yet well i mean i have been interested in being a dean and i was associate dean for research for northwestern university so i had you know i did it somewhat but when i say being a dean, I mean like the dean, not a dean. <laughs> What's the attraction? <laughs> well, I think back to, uh, was it Star Trek? Or was it someplace else where I saw somebody, when I heard somebody say this? Would you rather be the pawn or would you rather be the chess player? And it's like kind of like, like I don't want to, it's a bad metaphor, <laughs> you know. I remember there's a joke. I've been on the faculty senate and I've, you know, I'm the chair of our faculty council, so I care very much about shared governance and all that. But it's a funny story that kind of captures the essence of some of this, which is the person who was the dean was talking to uh, the faculty. And he referred to the faculty as my faculty. And this professor is like full professor with tenure, didn't have to worry about you know <laughs> any repercussions, got up and said, you may be our dean but we will never be your faculty. And I remember, <laughs> I loved, I loved that. I don't know if it's true or not, but it really <laughs> captures the essence of so much of it. But that said, you know, the dean controls the re- a lot of the resources. And the dean is responsible for ultimately, you know, where the school or the college goes in terms of vision and things like that and helping the school to, to develop and, and to grow and to continue to move forward. How you recruit, where you, where you recruit, you know, all of those things, how much emphasis you put on different priorities. Do you really put an emphasis on inclusion or do you put an emphasis on fundraising or do you, you know, where do you put your uh, commitment, things like that. And how much do you put on engaged scholarship? I think that's so important personally, you know, get professors who engage in their community beyond the traditional academic arena. So, I just think it would be that would be a, a wonderful opportunity. I don't know if it's got a lot of downsides, you know, because you know I hate meetings and deans are in meetings all day long. So <laughs> you know, in terms of how I would spend my time, I would probably hate most most of it. But you know, that's kind of one thing that I'd be interested in uh, doing. But yeah, otherwise, I think that it would be fun. Uh, I've been with a couple of startups along the way. 
when I was at Columbia, they asked me to take a little time to help them with a startup. It was called Fathom. It was supposed to be an e-learning company. It was around 2000. It was great while it lasted, and then it went down in flames. They, were, they didn't realize this, but I tried to tell them, you're competing with this little company that's already growing, and it's going to be really tough to beat them. It's called Amazon. They were trying to make their revenue by selling, quote, unquote, knowledge products. Knowledge products at the time were books. And I'm like, this company, it's Amazon. They're already, that's what they do. And we're trying to compete with them. It's going to be really tough, you know, because they're putting huge resources into this. And you see where they've gone. I mean, now they, now they sell everything, right? Including cloud services, so much more than just retail products. So I'm interested in that. I'd be interested in, you know, maybe there's another opportunity down the road. Maybe one of my students will do a, you know, some sort of a, a startup that could really transform journalism in a, in a good way. I'd be interested in that. That'd be a wonderful thing to, to try. But if it never happens, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. I'm always thinking about what's going to be my next book. It's always a challenge, you know. I've done about a dozen, and I'm always thinking about the next one. So the next one could be wonderful, but I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> so you represent really, for listeners, two different fields, I think, education and journalism. And I guess the technical side and media comes from its relationship with journalism. Is that correct? For me, it's about that connection between the... Because journalism and media, and since, at least since the days of maybe the town crier, it's always been about... It's always been very much dependent on what's the technology of the day. And so how do you get around that? I mean, unless you're going to do all your journalism face-to-face there's going to be some sort of a technologically-based medium. And so that's definitely the case. So in terms of journalism, do you see opportunities for young folks in journalism? I know you teach them, Mm -hmm. but what is your outlook for opportunities in jobs and the industry in journalism? I think there are a lot of opportunities. I think that the opportunities are very exciting, but it will depend on one, students will have to be not only, you know, passionate about the truth and the pursuit of truth, that goes without saying, right? But also, they're going to have to be very creative and entrepreneurial because it's very different than in the old days where, okay, first you start out in some small market and you learn all the basics of how the practice and craft works. And then you work way up to a bigger market and then to a bigger market. That's all gone now. So the way in is you have to be somehow special in understanding how to engage the public uh, in, in these new ways and still know the basics of great journalism, of truth-telling and how to find the story and how to make sure you get the facts straight. You know, people think, you know, once they, when they see a story, maybe that it's easy to get the facts straight. <laughs> you can trip up on everything from spelling of the name to getting the, the, you know, the dollar amount wrong. You know, there's so many little things you can, you can get wrong in you know, journalism. So all of that, those fundamentals, that doesn't change. But you got to somehow demonstrate that you got this creative spark, uh, that you can tell stories in ways that will resonate with the public. It's a different, I think, uh, kind of MO than 40, 50 years ago in, in that sense. That's part of it. The other part of it is, I think, it's got to be understood that to do journalism, it's a calling. That it's not going to be some high-paid pathway to the future. It might work out, all right? You might do okay. But probably you're not going to be rich. 
And it's, it's a calling. And if, it, and if you don't feel that way, maybe it's not the right path for you because it's not, at least it's a full-time vocation, because it's probably not going to be highly, you know, well-paid for the average you know, reporter. Although I imagine some employers appreciate a journalism background in other fields. Absolutely. You could apply it to many fields to be able to be a good st- I mean, that's the thing that's, when you look at opportunities, it's not journalism per se, but now every organization creates media content. Everyone. There's not, you wouldn't be able to find any that don't do something. And it might be in the form of social media, or it might be they create some augmented reality, or they, you know, whatever. Virtually every organization from, and I've done projects, I've collaborated with different ones, for example, in museums. I did a project with the National Museum of, uh, Museum of Natural History in New York City, the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, I've done projects with other kinds of uh, or cultural organizations. The Rutgers has one of the Jacques Cousteau uh, research reserves. It's down in Tuckerton. We did a project together that. It was fantastic. I loved it. I got 11 of my students involved in that project. It was the most fun that I've had in a long time. And, I, and a lot of them, I think, really, really loved it too. So every organization now wants to tell stories and they want to use media to do that. So if you can tell stories and get your facts straight, that's a very marketable skill. And though that you can make pretty good money doing that. But to specifically and exclusively be doing journalism, it's probably not going to be really high paid for most people. I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings. But, but, so, but important. It's so important you know, to democracy, to civil society. What advice would you give to someone who's considering a career in this field? One thing I would suggest is if you ever have an opportunity or apply yourself to it, get an intern, internship. I think internships are so valuable to a field like journalism and media because it's not a purely theoretical construct. You know, it is one that is very much has an applied aspect to it. And so internships can really help you learn and apply what you're learning, say, in the classroom to what works in the real world. So that's one piece of advice I would give is try to get an internship or maybe more than one in something related to journalism and media. It doesn't have to be from a, for a news organization, per se, or a media organization. It could be for any organization that has some sort of a media-related enterprise. It could be for somebody who's do, doing podcasts. <laughs> Is there anything we haven't covered here that you think would be important for anyone considering a similar path? Well, I think we, we touched on it, but I would just, you know, amplify a little bit on how important, but also enriching international opportunities can be. Whether you go someplace or whether you just work with somebody who's in an international setting. I have an essay that I'm doing with two colleagues. And the one I mentioned, a guy that I worked with on this UNESCO project uh, in the Middle East, I'm a professor, but journalism background. And then we're doing it uh, with another colleague who is a journalism and a journalist and journalism professor in Iraq in Baghdad. And so the three of us have this opportunity. Now, I'm not going to Baghdad to meet with him, but we work online, you know. And it's so enriching to get that other point of view from a completely different place, a completely different culture, and to see where, where we see eye to eye and maybe where we don't. It's so enriching. And then when you do have a chance to, to go abroad, you know, a lot of Americans don't even have a passport. If you're going to go into journalism and media, get a passport and find some way to go to another country, even if it's just to Canada or maybe down to Mexico, you know, try to, try to leave 
you know, your, your community, uh, do so safely, but, you know, go someplace else where you can see the world from another point of view and don't just go to a bunch of tourist things. Try to get, you know, beyond the, the tourist things. They're not bad, but more than that, you can have a wonderful time. So, and learn so much. I was a Fulbright professor in Austria in media studies at the Academy of Fine Arts of Vienna. The thing that made it world famous, I think, especially, it's not just this great arts education and media education and all of that, but it's the school that turned down Hitler when he applied to go to art school. And uh, so I was their inaugural Fulbright professor in media studies back in 2008, 2009. My whole family was able to go, and we lived half a year there. and just had a fabulous time. It was so enriching. And I try to go back to Austria whenever I can. I'm doing a number of projects there. And out of that has come, I did a book a couple of years ago on old-time radio plays. And I've done some papers on on that because it was when radio was the new, it was the first electronic medium of mass communication. And so that's the period I was studying is not today, but it was when it was new. So learning about what Austria is is all about. Our first day there was amazing. We got settled in and the very first night they were having a ball. I mean, a ball, kind of where you dance. And it's for high schoolers. And so the very first night we're there, my kids are going to a ball, uh, a Vienna ball, right? <laughs> and then so we get the kids off to school the next day. And my wife and I went down to the, uh, where the Imperial Apartments are in, in the old in the city center of, of Vienna. And we're sitting outside. We have kind of a big table uh, at this cafe. And we're the only two people at it, but all the other tables were occupied. But there's people kind of looking around. It was obvious they were looking for a table. My wife noticed this. She's very, you know, empathetic in that sense. And she asked them, do you need a place to sit? You're welcome to sit here. And uh, I said, well, we're a big group. And she said, no problem. We'll just grab more chairs. And so they wound up sitting there. And we had a fabulous conversation with them. It turned out the elderly gentleman who was like the patriarch of the family was Eric Lessing. I don't know if that name rings a bell. But Eric Lessing, famous photojournalist who's Jewish, had to leave Austria because of the Anschluss and to not be killed in, uh, you know, uh, the Holocaust, made his way to Palestine and became a world-famous photographer. And here, my first day in Vienna, I'm sitting down with this guy and my wife, who's Jewish. It was just a fabulous connection to make on so many levels and so meaningful me, meaningful for me. Here's this guy that I've, you know, has been like a legend for me uh, for decades. And here I'm, I'm meeting the guy and chatting with him. And he invited us to hit a show at the Leica Center here in, in New York City. It was like unbelievable. So when you go abroad and you get beyond like just the basic stuff, you can have some amazing experiences and very uh, enriching. And you never know where you're going to find that next story. And if you're a journalist or a media person, finding that next story is always the the most exciting and important thing, right? Well, we have come to the end of our interview. Thank you so much. Thanks. Great pleasure. It It was amazing. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.